0: This is Car Expert.
1: The RS3, it just never came unstuck. We were all very impressed with how well it just got its
2: power down and kept on going. Ionic 6 sedan, I reckon it's going to really bust the guts of Tesla. To have 60 plus car brands is already incredibly competitive.
3: Some brands that we know and love are probably going to fall by the wayside as brands like Cooper start to proliferate.
0: G'day, Mike Costello.
3: Mandy Turner, how are
0: you? I am fabulous. Hello, Scott Collie.
3: Hello,
4: Mandy and Mike.
0: You had a chance to uh, put your eyes over a BYD Atto 3 the other day. Scully, what did you think?
4: I did. That's a very catchy name when you say it like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was up in Sydney for some other stuff and just drove past the BYD showroom and thought, I should stop and have a look in there. I've been meaning to do that for a long time. Um, and the car that everyone's really excited is the Atto 3, which is their sort of hatchback SUV, mid-sized option. It's going to come in at a similar price to the MG ZS EV, So it'll be, if not one of the most affordable electric cars in Australia. Um, and we're in a few owner groups for, for these cars. People have ordered them. They're very excited for them. So I've been hearing lots of positive stuff from people who've put their money down on the line, but I just wanted to see for myself what it was like. And uh, I'm looking forward to driving the car. At, at some point, we'll get a time behind the wheel. But based on a first look at the interior, I'm completely intrigued.
3: I'm uh, extremely mm. curious about this car. The company claims to have taken thousands of orders, as we'll touch on a bit later, and uh, it's on track next year or this year at least to probably be the number two EV behind the Model 3 if it can deliver what it promises to. And BYD globally, I mean, not many people in Australia know about BYD, but globally it's an absolute mega company. It's tipped by many to be the next Tesla in terms of the non-legacy brand that well and truly has a seat at the, the big table and is currently branching out its exports all over Europe and the US and... And it's a serious player, so so incredibly interested to see what it can pull out. I think the thing with the interior of the Ado 3 and looking at it up close is we've, we've heard a lot about
4: it, but some of the stuff that BYD's talked about and that we've kind of questioned, I'm not huge on the design of the interior, for example, but they said that the dashboard's meant to look like muscle sinews and there are red oh. streaks on the doors that are meant to be the muscles and the heartbeat and that sort of thing. And often car makers talk about that and you go, hmm, I can't really see that there. I, You know, maybe it was inspired by a jetliner from the 1930s, but it looks like a plastic dashboard to me. Um, but the Addo 3, and again, not huge on what I saw on the first look just because it's, it's so over the top in some spots, but you can't criticize them for not following through on what they're saying in the marketing because the dashboard kind of does look a bit like a muscle and there are red bits in there and it's a really interesting design. How it ages and how it goes as people live with it is going to be really interesting as well.
0: Mm, Indeed. Uh, Marco, you've been busy today writing up some news (laughs) stories. Uh, Now, some car brands have had a few headaches over some CO2 emissions announcements.
3: Yeah, there was a big story in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald over the weekend lambasting the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, which is the peak body for the car brands, because it wants a, um, a binding CO2 reduction plan out to the end of this decade that would make Australia much more lax on CO2 reduction than Europe or the US or China or pretty much anywhere else. And it's been accused by all manner of um, industry bodies and interest groups and reporters for being you know, uh, essentially in the pockets of car brands and big polluters. I've been trying to get to the bottom of that today by reading through some strategy documents around what it wants the car brands to do um, as it advises the government as we move towards the long overdue binding CO2 reduction scheme that Albanese's government is definitely going to put in place. It's incredibly dull stuff with lots and lots of numbers and research and other things like that. My head's sort of spinning, but it is very important because it's going to decide essentially what the government forces car brands in Australia to do, and the argument is is very simple solid that without some sort of binding CO2 reduction plan in place, we're just not going to get the supply of EVs and hybrids that we need to get those emissions down. So, it's an incredibly important area of research. It's just also incredibly energy intensive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As are V facts, uh, which we, you're going to talk about a little bit later on too, just after Car News.
3: When it doesn't rain, it pours.
0: Let's get stuck into this week's Car News and to help us do that, Jack Quick, hello.
5: Hey there, Mandy. How are
0: you? Well, I suppose I'm a little sad because we're going to start off this week's car news with the Ford Fiesta ST and the Focus ST being axed from our Aussie lineup.
5: Yes, Mandy, that's correct. It's some sad news <laughs> yeah. indeed. Um, so yes, as you mentioned, uh, the Ford Focus ST and uh, the Fiesta ST have been axed locally, which means the entire Fiesta and Focus nameplates have been retired locally as they were the only uh, variants left in the lineup. So it's it's a it happened on uh, Friday last week, so it's a it's been a sad weekend for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've had the RS gone uh, from from the Focus. Like, what's left now?
5: Well, that was the ST. That was um, all that's left. The, the core range uh, left a few years ago, including the the high riding Active. Um, so it was only it was ST only uh, Focus ST only for just a year or two. Um, so it's been very like sole variant and just I guess in a way just couldn't get enough but I'll get into that just in a second because um, there are a few more shipments coming in uh, for existing order holders and um, the the two models are getting axed due to Predominantly uh, semiconductor shortages. And um, uh, Ford is also going to be focusing on what it calls its growth areas. Um, if you think of that, predominantly Ranger and obviously uh, SUVs like the, the Everest and the Escape. So it's not really going to have a, a sedan hatchback offering, or it hasn't had a sedan for very long, a uh, hatchback offering for. For a while now, it's just going to be SUVs and uh, commercial vehicles. Um, Get back to the story, though. There's going to be uh, 40 Focus ST models uh, that are going to be coming soon, um, uh, which can still be ordered, and uh, there's also going to be um, a small number that's in quotes of um, high spec uh, for uh, Ford focus uh, stX which is the the high spec model um, orders that aren't going to be fulfilled so if you have an order for that one you might be getting a phone call from Ford saying sorry your car's not actually going to be built which is a bit disappointing but in that case you are going to be getting, uh, full refund of your deposit and um, you're also going to be getting a whole heap of, um, uh, from memory I think it's like a, a bit of Ford merchandise and also um, a MasterCard for, I can't quite remember how much it is but I suppose it's not a car, so yeah. it's, regardless, you don't really win. Yeah, um, I do just just wonder of about it. the yeah. sort of
4: person who was going to buy a Focus, couldn't buy a Focus and instead just wears the Ford Performance cap they gave to tell people
3: about the Focus they couldn't buy. I don't know quite how that works. The real subtext here is also supplies. So, we know that Ford Australia has for a long time been incredibly hobbled on its European sourced vehicles. Both these hot hatches come out of Germany and uh, they just, just has not been able to bring many in, um, which has been amazing impediment and uh, I think Ford at the end of the day decided this is more trouble than it was actually worth. You know, you're putting a lot of resources into sourcing these vehicles that are only going to sell in tiny numbers anyway. Um, it's interesting that the company has also recently put orders of the Mustang a muscle car on hold because it again just cannot get any supply of them and the order bank was building up to such an extent that it just had to say I no more orders i've got to clear this thing out good news on that front is a new gen mustang gets revealed next month in the states and that will come to australia so moving forward Ford performance fans will still have the ranger raptor and the mustang to choose from but it does spell the end of ford's brief flirtation with its sort of european-led performance vehicles these two vehicles really were the embodiment of that and um it honestly is a bit of a tragedy and it leaves the market with two of the finest performance cars available no longer uh there for people to buy
4: jack i don't know if you've experienced the fiesta st and the focus st we've actually got a fiesta through next week so if you haven't you'll get the chance to but mike and mandy i know you guys have driven
3: them they're bloody great cars it's such I a shame know.
0: that's why i'm so sad
3: What was really interesting to me was how oversteer happy, the front-wheel drive, well, particularly the Focus ST because it had a slightly longer wheelbase. I mean, the Fiesta doesn't surprise you because of the way it's sort of set up, but the Focus was the most ridiculously lift-off oversteer happy front-wheel drive hot hatch. You sort of lift it off mid-corner and you would just start to drift out the rear end beautifully, but you had this wonderfully communicative, rapid, super quick off-centre steering to sort of help correct it. Manual gearbox was there. It adopted an auto towards the end of its life, but who the hell wants that, right? It's all about the manual Incredibly engaging, incredibly well-engineered and vehicles that were really underappreciated, I think. I think a, a very small clique of automotive enthusiasts truly understood what they were all about, but most people didn't even give them a thought. Ford barely promoted them and, well, you end up in the situation that we're in today.
0: Our next story, we just touched on this in the intro before. Thousands of BYD Atto 3 EVs are coming here in a few weeks' time, Jack.
5: Yes, that's right, Mandy. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, but yes, as you mentioned, uh, Mandy, there's going to be uh, three ships of the BYD at 03 coming in a few weeks. Um, and BYD says that it has around 4,000 uh, sales banked at the moment and uh, deliveries are going to be starting in a few week, a few weeks, should say. And um, it also has a capacity to build around 3,000 EVs per month, which is I, I would think um, off the just the top of my head, that's very competitive and there's there going to be a lot of them. We haven't seen any on the, on the roads right now. You can't even drive them. Uh, I think only the first few right-hand drive models are coming, but, um, but by the end of the year, we could be seeing a fair few of these. And um, it's quite, quite cool to be seeing something new coming. I, I've been kind of covering this for a while now and it's kind of cool to see how it came from start and it's almost there at the moment almost on sale and there's a, a huge community behind the uh, BYD which we've uh, probably talked about before on the podcast and the uh, die hard fans which is nice to see and um, so if you're not familiar BYD is um, a Chinese EV automaker and it's also um, one of the largest battery uh, producers in the world um, it produces uh, EV batteries for a whole heap of different automakers and um, uh, off the top of my head, I'm fairly certain it makes them for Tesla, for example. So, oh no, that's Cattle, um, but anyway, it's uh, one of the largest um, uh, battery producers in the world, and it does compete with Cattle, um, which is another one in China. And um, so, in Australia, with uh, BYD has partnered up with what's called um, EV Direct, um, which is a distributor, and um, so you can either buy these BYD Addo threes um, online through their EV Direct website, or um, you can go to a dealer um, backed by Eagers, which is another uh, an Australian or oh, like a big dealer network in Australia. Um, so you don't you're not locked into just buying it online. You can go into a dealer if you like, and um, so. Uh, BYD, as we first mentioned, the the first car is called the Atto 3, um, which is like a little uh, SUV. And it's going to be priced roughly around uh, $45,000, which is very competitive pricing. And it puts it uh, as one of the cheapest EVs on sale in Australia. And there are also plans uh, past this Atto 3 to introduce a Tesla Model 3 rivaling sedan uh, called the SEAL. Like the, or, or, like, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> and there's also going to be um, a small hatchback called the Dolphin, which um, oh I, I'm, I'm not going to try to make that noise, but you, I think you get the point.
4: <laughs> it feels a little bit like with its tank brand and the big dog and the the aura good cat, Havel is trying to open a zoo in Australia. I think BYD is going to do the aquarium. <laughs>
0: Um, now, I'm I'm pretty excited about this news, um, Jack. It's long overdue and it, it sort of seems to be bad timing because people are starting to get into EVs now. But Australian petrol is finally getting cleaner. Yes. Yeah, that's right,
5: Mandy. So um, the Albanese Labor government has um, introduced some um, legislation to bring forward the introduction of a low-sulfur petrol from 2027 to 2024 um, so, uh, the end of 2024, December. And um, what this means is that um, all petrol stations will have a maximum sulfur, electric, uh, sulfur level of 10 parts per million um, in its petrol that it offers and um, this applies over a variety of different petrol offerings obviously at a petrol station if you've ever been to one I'm guessing you have um, so it includes a uh, 91 and 95 and 98 and E85 so um, from tw- the end of 2024 um, it's going to have to have 10 parts per million of uh, sulfur and um, what this will mean is that sure we're going to have a cleaner petrol, but it's also going to make it more expensive. <laughs> um. And um, a spokesperson for the Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment, and Water, um, they said that there's going to be um, a price premium of around zero point six to one cents per litre um, once this goes into effect. So you 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 will notice a difference, but it does mean cleaner petrol Um, but I will quickly mention as well Australia has had um, dirty petrol for a very very long time and um, well behind Europe and um, I think it's about time but I'd love to know what you guys reckon.
4: This is something that the car industry has been pushing for for a really long time Uh, one of the big reasons that the Volkswagen group is always telling us it can't get the latest engine tech that it can't get EVs that sort of thing is because our emission standards and our fuel standards aren't up to scratch with Europe. And there are some practical issues with our fuel already when it comes to newer engines. The higher sulfur content in lower octane Australian fuel at the moment will, according to VW, clog up the particulate filters. And and they're something that are becoming more prevalent in European small cars across the board. Um, But also the sulfur content is one of the things that makes the emissions from your car dirty. So I understand petrol is going to be more expensive, but Obviously, this will have to play out in the future. It also opens the door for new engines and new tech to come to Australia sooner than it previously would have, which can only be a good thing for people who do want to buy the latest greatest and want to buy the cleanest cars they possibly can.
3: It also ties into just a wider issue that we see in Australia, which is our CO2 emission standards are way behind the times, our fuel efficiency standards are way behind the times, our tax system is incredibly retrograde with all sorts of weird dated taxes that are basically only there because of the fact we used to make cars here and the government just hasn't been asked getting rid of them since. So, in so many industry factors, Australia is a million miles behind best practice, which is, you know, Europe, Asia, uh, uh, North America, all over the place. And this is emblematic, hopefully, of a bit of a sea change in Australia where we do start to actually catch up to the field when it comes to all of these sorts of matters.
0: Well, one of my pet hates are people who buy new cars and then resell them, you know, a matter of days or months later, given, um, you know, the car shortages at the moment. But it appears that uh, General Motors are really cracking down on these people, Jack. Thank goodness.
5: Yes. Yeah, I, I know that all too well with the chimneys in particular. I know yeah. a lot of people that... um. Buy them and then try and flip them for an obscene amount of money. But um, getting back to this story in particular, General Motors uh, in the US is targeting and penalizing buyers who want to buy high-demand vehicles <laughs> and then flip them to to make a profit. That's the the whole scheme behind it, and um, it's targeting these high demand vehicles think for example um the chevrolet corvette z06 and then mm. also the gmc hummer ev those really um cutting edge high demand vehicles that everyone wants and you're going to struggle to get one but i if i buy one i can flip it around and give it to you for 10 percent more that kind of mentality gm is ca- uh, cracking down on that and i um, if you do this, GM in the US is going to um, going to make it make you ineligible of making a future order on any of its cars,
0: wow. and it's also
5: going to uh, void the warranty of that car. Um, and that also means if like if you sell that car, the the voided warranty is then passed on to the person that buys that car, which is horrible but like no. uh, it's just one way of having to just crack down on people just making money and off of just not being able to get a car. Well <laughs> and, they to uh,
0: devalue a car too.
5: <laughs> yeah no exactly. So um, the way this works is uh, GM has said um, that within the first 12 months of um, taking delivery of the car, you have to keep it in your possession. And then after that 12 months, you can kind of do whatever you like. But if you sell your car during those 12 months, you're going to have, like, as I've said, the the warranty um, voided and you won't be able to order another um, GM car. But I want to know, guys, is this the, the right move to be making?
3: So you're right in the sense that this is a major issue. We're also seeing a lot of this in Australia now. You've only got to go on car sales to see the number of dealer demonstrated, Toyota Land Cruiser Sahara's going for a buck eighty or 200 which is miles above RRP. Same thing for patrol, same thing for all manner of heavily in-demand vehicles and, of course, the Jimny, as Jack mentioned. So clearly... Um, And this is happening in an even bigger way in the United States, things like F-150 Lightning and others, dealers are just gouging like you would not believe. So I completely understand why OEMs really want to try and find a way to stop their dealers gouging like crazy or stop punters gouging like crazy and thereby really hurting their brand um, in the long run because people crack the shits and, you know, think that the cars are a ripoff. But uh, it does kind of lose me where you start to talk about potentially punishing the next owners. So mm. I completely understand the idea of, right, as an OEM, my brand is being hurt because people are selling these cars for too much. How do I stop it? Punish the person who's cynically buying the car and flipping it, which is basically the car equivalent of ticket scalping, but then punishing the next owner by not offering them a warranty on a vehicle that they've purchased. Just is absolute bullcrap. There's no way that you should be punishing somebody who buys a car secondhand from having a warranty. I don't even know how they could possibly get that over the line. There's no way you could do that in Australia. Um, so that's my only concern. The fundamental problem is one that needs to be addressed, especially in these times of massive shortages. But I think GM might have overstepped the mark on this one.
4: I think the other thing, and you mentioned massive shortages, is GM could solve this problem if it could supply enough cars. (laughs) Ultimately, it's a problem of GM's creation. And I understand that people will always play the game. They'll want to be the first to it. But we've seen with stuff like all the way from watches through to some cars that there'll be a rush and there'll be people flipping their cars in the first couple of months. And then as supply catches up, that stops really quickly. GM has the solution available to it. If it builds more Z06s or builds more Hummer EVs, the market supply is higher, demand is met, and you can't get away with these crazy prices. So as much as I applaud GM for trying to stop people from taking spots from genuine enthusiasts or owners who want to buy their cars and enjoy them, ultimately the problem isn't the people flipping because they're only flipping because the market allows it. Fix the market, build enough cars,
3: And that's the end of the problem completely. Without wanting to get into too much of a debate here, that is a little simplistic in the sense that there are big structural reasons why GM can't make enough cars at the moment, which is to do with the supply chain and the fact that there's a pandemic ongoing and a war in Ukraine and all these other things. So it's not quite as easy as just saying, hey, turn the tap on GM, because if it could, it certainly would. But that being said, there's no doubt that this is A, a temporary issue, and B, it is one that uh, sounds like the cure is going to actually, in some ways, make the situation worse.
4: Yeah, I won't go on too far from that. Completely agree with what you're saying. Um, I think when things get ramped up again, and if we see car makers still trying to trickle out special editions and artificially cap production of cars that lots of people want, Uh, I think that's yeah more sort of what I'm talking about because we've seen it with cars, everything from the Shelby GT three fifty R in the US through to cars in Australia, like the nine eleven GT3, where there's such limited supply and it's, it's a choice from the car makers to only offer that many. That's more what I'm getting at because, yeah, I realise GM can't snap its fingers and make semiconductors appear. If they could, they'd be the best-selling car maker in the world. Mm. Mm.
0: Certainly a very controversial topic indeed. CarExpert.com.au. Hit the news link for more. And thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Maddie. Just before we do wrap up this week's car news, we are going to cover off on V facts the July new car sales figures mocha you're the guy who's been constantly writing up this, so you're the pro um How did we go for last month?
3: Not too bad. So uh, there was actually 0.4% growth uh, last month over the same month in 2021, despite ongoing stock shortages and wait lists that we all have heard so very much about. Um, So the industry database VFax reported just under 85,000 cars sold for the first month of the new financial year. Um, But given there was actually one less sales day, that's a bit more impressive than it seems. It's equal to about 130 more sales per day. In the same month last year, um, Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries has basically said that things still haven't normalized since the pandemic, and they're pretty much right, you know, citing shipping issues and logistical costs and production snags and all these things, lack of chips. But nevertheless, the market's actually holding in there pretty well, which suggests to me that these long uh, wait times that we're seeing across Toyota and Hyundai and all manner of other brands is... Just as much a demand problem as a supply one at this point. It might be a case of, you know, more people are putting their hands up to buy new cars because of the perception of a continuing lack of vehicles because sales were actually about level for the month. Um, in fact, sales in New South Wales are up by 10.9% and South Australia are up by 13%. So, two of the bigger, bigger states. Uh, actually did quite well. Toyota topped the brand sales chart as it always does. Hilux remained the market's top selling car and it was actually the second successive monthly sales record for that vehicle. June was its highest month ever and July was its best July to date. Now, in the context of a new Ranger just launching and the fact that the Hilux feels quite dated by comparison, it's interesting that people are still in, you know, heavily gravitating yeah. towards that car, um, probably based just on perception more than reality, I would suggest. Um, while demand for EVs, on the other hand, remains sky high, in fact, all-time high, uh, the actual market penetration is still below 2% um, and sales grew less than 20% for the month over the previous month against a year-to-date increase of almost 300% for EVs. So, sales really fell away in July on on the EV front compared to what they've been doing for the rest of the year. A lot of that was because Tesla, well, it was expected to sell a, a glut of cars in June. It failed to. It again failed to in July as well, Um, because it hasn't been able to get shipments out of Shanghai in a timely manner although we do understand that there's a lot of Tesla ships arriving as we speak so hopefully that EV sales figure will get a nice little bump for the August results. Uh, If we have a look at the brand breakdown as I said Toyota number one with just under 20,000 sales grew 11% so its growth was above the market average. Mazda in second despite declining by 12% Hyundai in third up 34% with a ripper month thanks to a, a bit of supply coming in. Edged out its uh, little brother Kia, although year-to-date Kia still sits ahead of Hyundai, um, Mitsubishi in fifth, Ford, MG, Mercedes-Benz, Subaru, and Isuzu Ute rounding out the top 10. Um, and if we have a look at some of the brands that really did suffer for the month, Nissan was down by t- nearly 20%, Volkswagen by 47%, Lexus by 31%, Skoda by 41%, Land Rover down 66%. So there were a number of brands that really did battle, despite the market sort of stabilizing
4: Moco, we're seeing, and we've been talking a lot on this podcast about new brands. One of the ones, and I was with them last week is why it's fresh in my mind, that is now on the board in Australia is Cupra. 49 cars registered in July. We're expecting more in August. It's interesting to see the brands that it came close to outselling. It's knocking on the door of Alfa Romeo and some of those smaller upstart luxury Uh brands I realise this is pent-up demand and the longer-term thing will obviously be more telling, but they are off to a, a stronger start than expected based on the order bank we know is coming.
3: Yeah, and, I mean, on that note, there's so many new brands coming into the market in the near future. It's not just Cooper, but obviously Polestar has just launched. We've also got any else coming, with it's Grenadier 4x4, a suite of Chinese brands, be they BYD or Cherry or Aura, Tank, Um, There's a whole sequence of new manufacturers coming into the market, Cupra being just one of them and possibly the best backed of the bunch. Uh, And, of course, the trickle-on effect to that is every car that one of these new Conquest brands manages to sell is one less car that an existing brand manages to sell. And you do have to wonder how many car brands can Australia actually support for a million just over a million market, to have 60-plus car brands is already already incredibly sort of fragmented and competitive. So it does make me think that some brands that we know and love are probably going to fall by the wayside as brands like Cooper start to proliferate. But um, if we have a look at the uh, the model sales breakdown for the month, uh, as I sort of touched on before, Hilux was number one. Ford Ranger is interesting. Ford said it's going to be bringing 5,000 ranges a month for the next couple of months to satisfy early demand, nearly 20,000 pre-orders. But it only sold just under 3,000 for the month, so something must have gone wrong there. Still enough to finish in second place overall, ahead of the Toyota RAV4, which, as we know, has a wait time of out to 18 months for the hybrid models at the moment with just under 2,500 sales. Mazda CX-5 in fifth, and Hyundai Tucson, uh, sorry, Mazda CX-5 in fourth and Hyundai Tucson in fifth. The top 20 sellers list comprise six mid-sized SUVs. So that really is where the bulk of the growth is going. Might explain why our recent SUV off-road mega test performed so well on YouTube. Uh, five utility vehicles, two small cars, two large SUVs, two small SUVs, one upper large SUV and one light SUV. So, Some representation there, but as you can see, it's really the dual-cab utes and the medium SUVs that are driving the bulk of the sales, as usual. Um, If we look to just break it down in a few other areas as well, some of the miscellaneous facts and figures that I found quite interesting for the month, SUVs overall were 53% of the total market, um, and light commercial was another 24%. So more than three-quarters of cars sold were SUVs and utes. Mid-sized SUVs, about 20% of the market overall. Private buyer sales are up by 1.8% and rental fleets are up by just under 30% for the month. So big growth there, but that was offset by a decline in business fleet sales and government fleet sales, both of which fell to be expected when you consider the fact that cost of cars are going up and there's going to be a few more sort of, uh, I guess, judicious purchases made by the nation's fleet managers. Um, Electric car sales are up by 18% as mentioned, but plug-in hybrid sales are up by 78% for the month. So a bit healthier on that front with the new Mitsubishi Outlander FEV just launching that will spike even further into the next month or two. Petrol still dominated uh, with 44,000 sales, so about half of all the cars sold still being petrol. And as far as sources of imports go, Japan, Thailand, and Korea were the top three, but China, once again in fourth place, uh, edging out the US as our fourth most preferred source of new vehicles. Not a whole lot of other really exciting things going on this month. It was sort of business as usual. There was nothing that leapt out at me and sort of hit me around the face and made me go, oh my God, that's unheard of. Um, Sort of much of the same. But as always, if there is anything that um, any of you out there listening do want to know about these figures, how your particular car sold, how a segment did, other trends or analysis that you want, head to the comments, write it down, and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can.
0: Hello, Tony Crawford. Hey, Mandy, how are you? Very good, thank you. Mm-hmm. Now you've uh, you've been driving the Hyundai Ionic Six recently. Now I'm actually not sure what you would call this car. Is it a sedan? Is it a coupe? Mm-hmm.
2: It's, yeah, I know what you mean, and um, it's kind of everyone's question, but it yeah. is a sedan. It is a very large sedan too. It's like 4.855. Mm-hmm. It's long. It's really long, but you don't feel that when you drive it for some reason. Now, the, the design is a bit polarizing from the comments um, that I've seen on uh, our news articles, and um, it's based on old 50s and 40s streamliners. Uh, there was a kind of design sort of uh, phase of, of that period where people designed very streamlined cars, um, and that's what the influence was for designing a car with a very raked rear uh, roofline. And I like it, actually, and it probably is one of those cars that looks better in the metal than in the pick's. Because um, there's a lot of lot of detail to this car, and by the way, this car comes out uh, all electric, Ionic Six Sedan um, comes out in uh, early 2023, and I reckon it's going to really bust the guts of Tesla, um, and I hope it does. I hope it destroys them, frankly, because uh, I think you're getting a sub. Subpar product with Tesla in my mind.
4: So, Croft, you say it's going to bust the guts of Tesla open, Mm. but Mm. it's probably going to be more expensive than a Model 3. It's bigger than a Model 3, and Hyundai hasn't been able to supply its Ionic cars so far to Australia. So, how exactly is it a rival to Tesla? And are Hyundai actually going to be able to give us enough to make some sort of
2: an impact? Well, firstly, they say it's going to sell for between 70 and 80 grand. Uh, and that's probably where Tesla is pretty much these days with their latest price increases. So, I, and and by the way, you know, the fact that you get nothing in front of you except a steering wheel and a Tesla uh, where you get full digital uh, configurable screen in front of you in the Ionic 6 plus another big screen beside that for infotainment and every other uh, feature you can imagine including some of the best digital uh, side mirrors I've ever seen. that are actually huge and they give this massive field of view that looked really normal when I was looking at it, Um, which I found good because the Audi one was so bad in the e-tron that I I sort of forgot about them for a while. But, um, yeah, so I think that, yeah, stock is going to be a thing and, and obviously Hyundai know that, but they also know they have an opportunity to really put a dent in Tesla's sales by providing this car that's kind of, an easier transition to make for for people switching from uh, combustion engine cars to all-electric cars. This seems like a complete fit. And when we jumped in it to drive it, and bear in mind, we only did drive it for about 40 minutes on public roads, no no less, Uh, and we gave it a boot uh, as well down a sort of a speed track, if you like, test track, and then went out onto the public road. So we did get a good feel for it, Um, and it is a far better car uh w- much better suspended I-, I drove in a tesla recently uh, both in back seat and uh, driver's seat i thought it was a horrendously hard riding vehicle and i uh, couldn't understand why it was so hard riding and said to my mate who'd bought two i said you yeah, know if you can wait you really should be looking at something like ionic 6 or even a polestar 2 for that matter because that rides better as well uh than tesla so i'm not a big fan of tesla i think they uh I think they charge a lot of money for a fairly sub-product as far as I'm concerned. The charging infrastructure is great, um, but uh, the Ioniq 6 is one of those cars that uh, can accept an 800-volt system and charge very, very quickly uh, on on an ultra-rapid charger.
4: Croft, one of the things that we love about the Ionic Five is the fact its interior feels so light and airy and modern. Does the Ionic Six have the same feel from behind the wheel, or is the interior as different as the exterior to the other Ionic cars we've seen previously?
2: No, I think the, la- the the former. I think this feels amazingly large, uh, but very compact to drive. Um, and it's just filled with technology. I can't stress that enough. It's got every known feature, but it doesn't feel like you're driving something unusual or it just feels like, okay, I'm slotted into this car and put the foot down. There's no noise, but, uh, gee, it goes, and it's, you know, 77.4-kilowatt battery, I believe. Um, Good for, they reckon, on the WLTP cycle, 610 kilometres. And we did sort of quiz them about that and sort of, put them to the task of, is this real world? And they believed it's real world. So we'll see. Um, we'll see. And don't forget, 5one to uh, 0-100, and this is a car that's not, uh, don't forget there's an, an Ionic 6N coming after that, um, which will be considerably quicker and more powerful out of the get-go. May not have the same range, but... Um, I think we all know that ranges are extending very, very quickly as battery technology uh, improves.
0: How did you find the, the, the rear seat headspace there, Croft? Because it is fairly raked at the back there.
2: It is, Mandy. It is. And <laughs> someone like uh, Mr. Scully would, in fact, struggle, but he is unusually uh, – uh, what's the word, the kind word? Uh, unusually tall, tall I think yes. To I tall. won't say um, inadvertently tall, but um, he, he is beyond tall and um, normal tall people like Moko, the six fours of the world, they do fit because Guido Schenken, the product, the uh, PR guy, sat in the back and he fitted quite well. So that's not a problem. And the reason why, by the way, that they made it a sedan and not a hatch or a liftback is because of the streamlined shape. And they, the designer, um, Simon Lowsby who I spoke to uh, at length, he told me that they couldn't move the, the, uh, the, the hinges, et cetera, and the mechanism to the roofline without affecting the streamlined um, shape of the vehicle. So that's why it's a sedan and not a liftback. They did think about it and probably wanted to do a liftback but were uh, restrained because of the actual design of the car.
4: Do you think there's a chance that it's a little bit too out there for some people? I know that you say it's meant to be an in-between for normal petrol and full electric for you know, people who don't want a Tesla, but it does look very different in pictures. It's a body style that no one's really buying at the moment. Do you think Hyundai might have tried to do a little bit too much here?
2: Look, it's possible. And I did say at the outset of this conversation that it is it's potentially very polarizing, um, some people will like it. But I think once people get into the car and see all these pixelated lights light up, I mean, the spoiler itself has four layers of pixels. It looks absolutely fabulous. It almost looks like a 911 turbo wing coming out of it. And don't forget, this is a car that has a CD. And the reason it's able to do that 610 claimed range is because that the CD is 0.21. Now, the only car that I know of that beats that. Is a very expensive Mercedes Benz EQS, which has a CD of 0.20. So, so uh, you-
0: you're not talking about compact discs, right, Croft?
2: No, a uh, coefficient of drag. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and, cool. Um, hence that fantastic range that they claim. You wouldn't uh, believe like, how it, many
4: uh, floppy discs it is, Mandy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that, so, you know, it, the, the, that streamlined shape has very, you know, everything is there for effect uh, to reduce the drag on the vehicle at speed. So we drove it and punched it and i thought it was quick it wasn't you know a life-changingly quick like a tesla model 3 performance um or something like that but as i do say again the the ionic 6n is coming and um uh, we also saw a a ionic 5n uh in its sort of production uh, uh stance or profile and uh this thing is a mental looking thing so i can only assume that the that the Ionic 6N will look every bit as aggressive and probably a bit similar to the um, the stories that we ran on the, um, uh, I think it's, we had the Envision 74 and we had the uh, the 22, uh, the other concept anyway that was very similar and they they, they say that that is, is what the Ionic 6N is going to look like. Uh, so have a look on uh, carexpert.com.au and look at the the concept stories that we ran earlier.
4: Crawford, we're going to start charging you for every name you drop in the podcast. (laughs) We've had Guido, Simon and Sung Yap, but you said Sung Yap and Simon twice, so Uh, that's $5 at least and that's going to go into a fund for the car expert Christmas party, I think.
2: Now that I know I'm being penalised for name dropping, Um, I won't be so liberal. Um, What do you think of it, Mandy? Like,
0: Oh, I don't like it.
2: Oh, Wow. Okay. Yeah,
0: but I, I would like to see it in, in person at some yeah. point, but I just can't find any angles that I, I like about it. Can I
2: it? just say the rear legroom is like a limo? Um, it would be just short of probably 60 centimetres. It's enormous.
4: Mm-hmm. I, I oh, loved yeah. the look of that concept car, but there's some – blocky bits on the production car that in the pictures kind of don't translate nearly as well. So I'm really hoping in person it blows me away. But, yeah. Croft, as the only one here I know who's seen it up close, you're, you're best placed of any of us to judge. I'm, I'm kind of with Mandy for now.
2: Okay. I, uh, there is one here apparently um, uh, being uh, looked at by uh, Hyundai Motor, Motors Australia at the moment. So uh, I'm sure it'll do the rounds uh, well before the actual effective product launch but um which would be probably later this year so you know in the not too many months we probably will be able to see it mm. the public will be able to see it but I, I think you'll like it there is so much attention to detail with this car both inside and out they've thought about everything even the so the reason there is so much legroom is they sculptured out the seats and they're 30 percent less volume than a normal seat Uh, in a car like this both, and then they've sculptured out the door door card. So you've got this beautiful cascading effect on the door with uh, fantastic ambient lighting that shines right down into the boxes so you can see what's in there, all stuff like that, you know. Um, It really is a a techno fest inside this thing, Um, but, again, very, very easy to just hop in and press the button and away you go, you know.
0: Have you given it a rating yet? Cruf?
2: no no we haven't we, we yep. drove it on um, too little time and um, uh, okay, these were sure. decidedly prototypes although yep. they looked good and felt good and there were no bad panel gaps or anything like that not with that horrendous uh video i saw the other day of paul's uh showing the panel gaps on the uh, jeep um which were horrendous It looked like a prototype to me
4: that uh that jeep we had through the melbourne office and the video is live on youtube uh there's a review to come as well i believe right. on the website but yeah the, the build quality on that thing was um was ask- sort of the friday 4 55 p.m special in some spots yeah yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah this is not like that and i think that's the other thing that uh everyone came up to me i took that uh i t- took that kona in up to their cars and coffee and people were coming up to me and saying "Gee, Hyundai really are making some great cars aren't they and You just got to agree with everyone. People are, the public is starting to notice the quality of the car, and the reputation is certainly very much out there. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of years they start giving Toyota a real run for their money, uh, both Kia and Hyundai as as a collective.
0: Well, you can check out the full review of the Ionic 6 at Car
2: Expert now. Thank you, Tony Crawford. Thanks, guys. Um, have a great podcast. I wish I could stay and interrupt and listen and interject and learn. Oh, you're breaking up there, Crawford. You must be going through a tunnel. Bye.
0: <laughs> the lover of all things green cars, James Wong. Hello.
4: Hello, hello. <laughs> you
0: would have been thrilled to be driving the Audi RS3 uh, <laughs> not too long ago. That yes. is a very bright green car.
1: Yeah, I made sure that I only chose the photos of the green one for my review. <laughs> there is a sedan in there in grey, but I thought that was boring. So, um, And that green car in the images is the actual one that I drove for the road drive as well. I made a beeline straight for it as soon as I stepped off the plane and saw it in the car park.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the, the rs that that's the smallest RS model you can get, right?
1: Correct, yeah.
0: Yeah. What did you think about it? Was it like the perfect hot hatch for you?
1: Yeah, well, as, as a, like a golf owner, something like an RS3 is almost like the pinnacle of what you can Mm -hmm. get on that platform. You know, it's like the, the fastest of fast. Hatchbacks, You know, even now with the, the A45s, um, the new RS3 is actually slightly quicker according to claim zero to 100 times. So um, Audi says it'll do 3.8 seconds to 100, which is like manic speed. Not too long wow. ago, that's what a Porsche Carrera GT or a Ferrari Enzo was doing. So when you think that, you know, this tiny little hatchback can get to 100 that fast, it's quite astonishing really. And they've achieved that not really with ma- major bumps to – engine output so it's still got the same two and a half litre five-cylinder turbo as before they've massaged it a little bit to give it 500 newton meters up from 480 but the power output remains the same at 294 but what they've done with this new rs3 and i think this is actually the case across the board with all the new vehicles on um, the volkswagen group's latest version of the mqb platform is that it's a lot more focused on being an engaging driver's car as well so it feels lower it feels lower and wider it handles better it feels a lot sharper now it's got this really trick, um, what Audi calls the RS Torque Splitter on the rear axle, and which basically what it is is a, a, a differential at the rear that can shuffle torque between the rear wheels. So normally with these front-biased all-wheel drive cars, we see some form of a limited slip diff on the front axle, but now there's also one on the rear. So not only can it shuffle torque front and back like some other Um, Volkswagen products you can also shuffle it between the left and right rear wheels so it's like this fully variable system where you can basically make it rear wheel drive and it has what's what is like a drift mode but Audi won't call it that (laughs) they were very quick to say this is RS torque rear mode they won't call it drift like Volkswagen (laughs) might do with the Golf R so basically the same tech in the Golf R the Golf R has the same um, thing on the rear axle that they call um the R-torque splitter or something something similar to that effect. Um, But, yeah, so you can basically do drift mode and then also while you're driving it will shuffle torque between the the rear wheels to the one with most grip and it's like activated by a clutch pack. So it's similar to the system that we've seen, you know, at the front and in the centre as well, but now it's also on the rear. So there's a lot of new tech in it that way and it's actually the current record holder for the compact class on the Nürburgring. So the RS3 sedan maybe six months ago, Beat the previous record holder, which was the previous generation Renault Megane RS Trophy R. I'll just breathe after <laughs> such a long <laughs> name. <thing. laughs> beat it by about five or six seconds. So, you know, this thing is not just fast in the straight line. And a lot of fast Audi's have gotten a bad rap for not being really track cars. They're really good in the straight line, but more GTs. Once you hit the track, they get a bit understeery. But this new one is like
4: properly track capable. It's interesting you mentioned the straight-line performance because the last RS3 was just dominated by its engine, which is such a characterful five-cylinder. How did Audi get this new engine by given emission standards getting tighter and tighter, and, and is it still a loud, bombastic kind of thing? Yeah,
1: well, obviously, like with the rest of the industry, Audi's had to move with the time, so it's got a lot of emissions things going on in there. You don't, They don't really go into all the details, but all the new up, a3 models, including the S3 and RS3, get petri- p- petrol particulate filters and all that kind of stuff. So it's all rated to be Euro 6. Um, in terms of how it sounds, um, as Audi's generations have gone on, we've seen it with the R8, RS3, and you know, all of their models. Noise regulations get tighter, which means that the sound that comes out of them isn't quite as expressive as they have been in the past. So I'm sure you'll remember like those that first lot of the previous generation RS3s were bloody loud they they could be mistaken for something mm-hmm. like an R8 at full noise and especially if you know you got like a resonator delete or like an exhaust system that really opened it up the new one it doesn't quite sound as bombastic as Scott put it but it definitely okay. sounds different and really characterful in a segment where it's exclusively four cylinder so everything else you know they are either it's either too parred back because you know it's a four cylinder they haven't done too much with it or they companies try to oversynthesize the sound in the cabin which then sounds a bit contrived or you know a little bit naff so one thing that the rs3 has is that it's not only officially the quickest by you know claimed zero to a hundred times but it also sounds the best because you know it's got the most distinctive and natural exhaust and it doesn't really have to do too much to make it sound better than anything else
3: Wongi, you've touched on some of the ways that this RS3 goes against the typical Audi grain in some ways, particularly around nipping in the bud, any misconceptions about the way that front-wheel drive biased or wheel drive Audis handle. But then again, there are some typical Audi tenets that I'm wondering whether it's lived up to, principally around the interior. Audis are renowned for having the best interiors in the business, built like bank vaults and beautifully thoughtful and finished and tactile and all those wonderful things. Has there been any loss of that with this new generation product or, or does it live up to the standards as far as interior design is confirmed, uh, concerned?
1: Well, it's a funny question that you ask because I think we've maybe touched on this for the A3 and the S3, which I also did the launches for. So I feel like now I'm basically the A3, S3, RS3 expert on the team because I'm very (laughs) across all the the different variations now. In terms of cabin, like build quality tech and all that kind of stuff, you know, Audi pitches itself as the technology company. It's very well known for having a quality, well-built interior. Is this new one as good as the last one? In terms of how everything's screwed together, perhaps not. You know, there are some places in the cabin that you can see that money's been saved and, you know, they may not have applied another layer of finished to some of the the trims or materials or surfaces or whatever. But then again, relative to the segment, we're seeing a lot of manufacturers focusing on tech or powertrains or all that kind of thing where it is you're seeing elements of the interior say, um, losing budget. And what I think Audi has done, while I have to knock it a little bit where, you know, some of the mid to lower tiers of the cabin are cheap plastics that you find in a Golf or Polo, which are less than half the price. I think Audi has perhaps kept the standard at a better level or dropped less compared to what it was before as opposed to some other brands. I personally find, you know, the new Golf interior, for example, I know it's a very polarizing thing. The Golf interior for me is a is a quite a noticeable step down on the previous one, both in terms of the design and the materials and whatever. Some people oppose that. But I'm not the biggest fan of that. Same goes for something like a Mercedes A-Class. So the, the A-Class for, a, you know, you think of Mercedes and you think of plush materials and all that kind of thing. I feel like the A-Class is a step down on the latest RS3 in terms of material quality and finish. So... Yes, it's it's not as good as the old one. The old one was the benchmark. I remember ever since it came out in like 2012, 2013, it was basically the benchmark small car interior and the Golf was not far behind in that generation and left everything else for dust. But this new one is definitely going to be a a slight step down for people who are used to the previous one. But in insane that also the tech and you know the the stuff that you actually touch and hold is really really nice so some of the cars that we had on the launch had the optional rs design package which adds in some matching color highlights so this green one had matching green bits in the interior whether it was the contrast stitching there was accents on the seats um, the seat belts uh, the steering wheels finished in alcantara with green stitching so all that stuff feels really cool and you know that still feels really high quality even though some of the other parts have taken a dip and then you know using the 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 latest Audi MMI touch infotainment system with the um, MIB3 interface, which includes things like wireless Apple CarPlay and things like that. It's definitely a lot better than um, some other systems on the market and it all just works really, really well. It also hasn't moved to some touch capacitive controls like we've seen across other Volkswagen brands um, where they can be quite fiddly and annoying to use on the move. But yeah, to answer the original question, is it as well built as the
4: old one? Probably not. If I hear one more infotainment acronym, I may die. Uh, M-I-B-F-N-F-A-R-S-3. How does the car go on track? Because that's obviously what Audi says, it's really improved here. I know you had some time at the bend. What's it like?
1: it was so much fun. So The, we only got maybe two or three laps um, with an Audi driving experience instructor leading in an RS5. Um, And we did, I believe it was the East Circuit of the bend, which is, has a good mix of technical low speed, high speed stuff and you get a feel for it. Um, And gradually the pace would um, build up as you go. Now, this was my first time on the bend. So I don't have the best reference point with other vehicles on that track. But in terms of like how well the RS3 handled all that it was it it just never came unstuck from the road drive we were were all very impressed with how well it just got its power down and kept on going even though we experienced some um, adverse weather conditions on the drive and and it, it carried over to the track as well not once did I feel like um, pushing it hard or you know trying to accelerate hard out of a corner that the car would just understeer it, it gripped really hard it pointed where i where i was turning the steering wheel perhaps not the sharpest or most communicative steering rack on the market which is something that we've knocked out for for a really long time But it's so much fun and and absolutely goes like stink. On the main straight, I think I managed to hit like 230 or 240 without really trying. And it's, you know, it's, it's just properly quick. And because it's got such a distinctive exhaust note as well, it just sounds different. It sounds more special and substantial compared to some of the other stuff that's on the market. So in that limited time that I had, I had a really, really good time in it.
0: Did you also get a chance to drive it on the road as well, public road?
1: Yeah, so that, that was the first yeah. part of the drive. We drove it from the Adelaide Airport out to Tailand Bend, which is where the Bend racetrack is. Um, but we took the like the scenic route through um, nice. the Adelaide Hills and um, we got quite a mix of, you know, B roads, highways, all that kind of thing. And when you weren't distracted by the wonderful scenery, you were really taking in <laughs> just how much fun it was to drive this car at various speed levels. You know, there are some 60, 80-kilometre an hour roads that are quite tight and technical it was really, really capable and sharp through there. And um, when you were cruising as well, it was. It has this really good duality to it where you can just cruise along on the freeway with adaptive cruise on and lane centering assist and all that kind of stuff. And it's very, very easy to live with. And then when you want to dial it up a few notches, you can pop it in one of the RS modes, put everything into full attack and you know it makes lots of noise. It
4: sharpens up. It responds really quickly and it's just a, just a real hoot. So you did mention RS Torque Splitter mode <laughs> uh, or drift mode. Did yeah. you get to try it
1: out? Yes, I did on a, on a wet skid pan. Did I have much success? Sort of, kind of. I'm not really <laughs> experienced in drifting cars. I like to keep them on the straight and narrow. <laughs> so uh-huh. it was a bit of a weird feeling. And some of the, with these new um, variable all-wheel drive systems where they typically front bias and you have to shuffle torque to the rear, there's a bit of a, a skill that you you need to build up to do it because you need to sort of keep hammering the throttle and not come off too quickly because otherwise it'll the, the car will think that you need you will you don't need power to the rear anymore so it'll just shut off the rear axle it's not sort of like this weird technical underneath the skin thing that you sort of have to get used to but um while i couldn't achieve the best results plen- there was a few other journos that were a bit more experienced that could definitely you know get it sideways and we had some um, race drivers coaching us on how to do it and it's definitely capable of getting sideways and having a bit of fun and you know we had like a little figure eight circuit and just trying to get as get it as sideways as possible which was quite (laughs) good um but yeah definitely definitely an interesting feeling not having it naturally rear-wheel drive trying to get it sideways
0: and lastly can you take us through the car expert rating you gave it so
1: I gave it an overall score of 8.7 out of 10, um, with highlights being the fit for purpose, performance, and um, the technology and infotainment on offer. It it really is a, a great balance of all those things. And I guess one, one thing that these hot hatches, even at the hyper level, need to keep in mind is being a, a an everything car um, at the end of the day it's like you know it, it's a hot hatch is meant to be a practical daily and usable but also a lot of fun to drive and even though these ones are a bit more extreme on the performance stakes um, it definitely keeps that balance really nicely so I could I could definitely see myself owning one if I had the money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Green please. Yes absolutely. You can see the review live now at carexpert.com.au. Thanks James Thanks for having me. Hey, Moko, as we round out this week's podcast, what cars can we look forward to for next week?
3: We have got a lot of cars in our garages across this nation. Um, the updated Hyundai Palisade is going to be joining us. So too is the uh, a bit of a revisit of a couple of seven seat medium SUVs: the Volkswagen Tiguan Allspace, Honda CRV, VTIL Seven. And the relatively new uh, Mitsubishi Outlander LS seven-seater, so kind of a battle of the affordable seven-seat mid-sized SUVs. New generation Ford Ranger, we're getting our first crack in the XLS, which is one of the real workhorse varieties. We've really, really spent a lot of time now on the Wild Track Sport and XLT, so now we're really going to get deep into those more workhorse grades. Kia Niro S, which is the base version of the new Niro EV, still bloody expensive though. Uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee L Limited, um, a slightly lower grade than the last version that we drove. i have got a Mitsubishi Triton GSR up in Brizzy as well. Although I do have to call out, we've also got coming up relatively uh, shortly, I should say, a wonderful little small pocket rocket comparison, including the Ford Fiesta ST, which we touched on before is now retired. So very excited to get one last crack at that before, unfortunately, the curtain gets pulled down.
0: Can you give us a hint on other cars that are in that
3: or is it a secret? Might have a Hyundai badge on the front. I'm sure you can guess. Oh, Yes. (laughs) Um, And Scully, where are we off to next week? It's actually a little
4: bit quieter on the travel front for the team. The last couple of weeks have been quite hectic, but Jack and I are heading to Phillip Island to drive. Actually, if you had to guess, Mandy, I'm going to say supercar and loud. A
0: supercar
4: and loud, a 911 GT3. Ooh,
0: Lamborghini Huracan STO. Oh, I would never have guessed
4: that. (laughs) <laughs> I figured it was worth a shot. I love a guessing game on the podcast, <laughs> um, but yeah, Jack and I are going to head that way. And there's some new stuff and some interviews going on, but also a chance to drive the Huracan at full noise at Phillip Island, which is really, really exciting. And then into next week, Mike's off to Sydney to drive some new Skoda products.
0: Ooh, that would have to be probably. Would it be the first supercar Jack's ever driven? I know he can't be here to answer that, but it,
4: uh, it definitely would be, unless you consider the Jimny a supercar, in that it's an impractical <laughs> bright blue two door.
0: Mike Costello and Scott Colley, thank you
2: Thanks Mandy Thank you guys